Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I am talking today with Frederick Clarkson, Senior Research Analyst at Political Research Associates. So thank you for dropping into MindShift Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So do you go by Frederick or Fred? I need to ask you that right up front. Well, it was Frederick for sort of public commercial purposes, but my friends and colleagues call me Fred. So Okay, so Fred. is that all right to call you Fred then? Please do. Please <laughs> I know do. we've actually only met now in person, but we've been emailing back and forth for probably two years maybe about doing a, a podcast episode because I came across your name when I started researching basically dominion theology, the Christian right, Christian reconstructionism, RJ Rushdoony, your name popped up straight away because obviously you've written a lot of articles, you've written books on this subject. So I'm really glad that we finally are able to connect. Yeah, it's always very strange to uh, doing Google searches to find my name popping up in the same sentence as R.J. Rushdoony all the time. Even our right. pictures are connected. So. Right. You do have a beard kind of like he did. I have to say that. You have an epic well, beard going. <laughs> yours is closer to his than mine. <laughs> yeah, I've got a bit more down there. I've, I've just, yeah. I don't shave anymore. I just let it go. So what got you into, I know you've been writing and reading, researching on this for a long time. What got you into studying this sort of area of information? Uh, well, I've always been interested in religion and politics, but uh, I arrived in Washington, D.C. I was a recent college graduate during the Carter administration. And by the time Ronald Reagan showed up as president, Washington, D.C. had transformed and you couldn't be awake and interested mm. in politics and religion without seeing what had happened. You know, the, yeah, I was a three newspaper a, guy, news, newspaper a day kind of guy, but, you know, newspapers were dying. And Washington, D.C. had become a one newspaper town until the Washington Times showed up. And uh, so the number two daily in the, uh, in the nation's capital started out, you know, with a, with a four color, you know, front page that nobody mm -hmm. had. And it was all subsidized by the Unification Church of Sun Myung Moon. Yes, and I it, remember that. It's and that's still it was the a case. Front for the Moonies, basically, it wasn't was a it? Front for the Moonies and various right. and various international intelligence agencies. So that so uh, that got me researching and writing about this stuff. But you know, more broadly, the Christian right had come to town with Ronald Reagan, mm. and he was populating his administration with the people who he owed. And, uh, you know, the growth of the Christian right, uh, you know, is well known. But like I say, uh, from my standpoint, you couldn't be interested in these things and not see it and not want to know more. Mm -hmm. So you're going back 1976, the year of the evangelical, right? So right. as you say, Carter gets elected off the back of a surprising surge in evangelical voters. It was kind of like they didn't even realize how big of a base they could potentially be. Yes, they did. <laughs> And then, yeah, it was that was the whole thing. Everything started changing around that time, wasn't it? When they well, were like, "Hey, this yeah. could be something huge." Well, yeah, it's the 
the right wing had been interested in for a long time in figuring mm. out how they could mobilize conservative evangelicals who, because of their theology, were generally apolitical, right? Right. Marginally political. So even though Jimmy Carter was a relatively liberal Democrat, certainly by their standards, the conservative movement backed Jimmy Carter over quietly, very quietly, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. over Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford had gotten in, you know, as uh, in the middle of Richard Nixon's second term. As an incumbent president, he had a good chance of being reelected. And if he was reelected to one term, there's a good chance he would be reelected to a second term because within the Constitution, you can be a president for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the right, who didn't like the moderate Jerry Ford, you know, would rather have one term of Jimmy Carter, who they thought they could replace with Ronald Reagan, than two terms mm. of Gerald Ford, who would marginalize them. But here's the interesting thing in their strategy. They realized correctly, as it turned out, that you could begin to mobilize evangelicals if the candidate was one of them. Mm. Right? That's so it's like John one. Kennedy was the first Catholic you know, president, and he mobilized mm-hmm. a kind of Catholics because of that that identity connection. That's part of how the Christian right created the Christian right by electing mm. a liberal Democrat as president. Because mm-hmm. they soured on Carter, didn't they? At first they were, oh, he's a Christian. He's clearly an evangelical. Some people have said he's truly probably the only president we've ever had in America that was a true evangelical. Everybody else just pandered to the Christian right. But Carter was a genuine Christian, I think, wasn't he? Uh, people like Jimmy Carter and they respect, you know, his, uh, mm-hmm. uh, his uh, commitment to his principles and, and the life that he lives. But, you know, Bill Clinton was an evangelical Christian. Yeah. Al Gore is an evangelical Christian, you know. And they were Democrats. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what I mean. Yeah. It's like there, there, there's a, a false narrative about who evangelicals and Democrats even are. Right. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they soured on Carter, though, wasn't it? Because he, his policies were obviously much more liberal. They didn't see him as pandering to the Christian right. It seemed like then they turned against him and found this evangelical friendly candidate, Ronald Reagan, as you said. And his famous, you know, his famous statement in 1980, wasn't it? You can't endorse me, but I endorse you. And they, the whole place just went wild. It was a, an event in Dallas, I think it was. Yeah, it was the occasion was the Republican National Convention. That, uh, that nominate him as president, but they were sort of a, a, a rump event held by, uh, testing my memory here, uh, well, one of the, I think the religious roundtable. I was going to say a religious roundtable. Yeah, which was sort of the big, uh, one of the big Christian right coalitions of the time. And so there were suddenly several thousand people, many of them pastors, who were at this rump event that Ronald Reagan addressed, and he said these things. Hmm. And... Uh, <laughs> And that was a remarkable thing. Uh, the Christian Reconstructionist uh, writer Gary North uh, remarked on it at the time that uh, th- this was amazing. Paraphrasing his idea here, mm-hmm. but but this was ide- uh, this was amazing because these were the people that used to be apolitical, and here they are at this big political event, and they've absorbed the ideas of Rush Dooney and Reconstructionism more than they even know. Yeah, there's that famous story, isn't there? Uh, I think it's in Michael McVicker's book on R.J. Rush Dooney. That's right. Someone turns to Gary North and says. Basically, oh, why, how come Rush Dooney isn't here speaking? He should be at this event. We, you know, we all read his books, but nobody wants to admit that, <laughs> you know. So there's this kind of apocryphal story out there about 
how much of an impact Rush Dooney actually had. Even though you don't see his name really, he's not up there with the Paul Wyricks and the Jerry Falwells and the Tim LaHaye's when it comes to sort of the main players, is it, in the Christian right? Yeah, because he wasn't really a player on the Christian right. He was sort of a behind-the-scenes influence. He saw himself as uh, as building the theological foundation for the Christian world to come. He saw the imminent collapse of the United States and, and the economy, perhaps in a nuclear war. In fact, he, he built his Chalcedon Foundation as basically an underground bunker they thought would survive nuclear <laughs> war with, with, with Russia. And so, okay. so he, he was a survivalist in that way, right? But, so, but the thinking, his life's work was to build this theological foundation for what should emerge from the ashes. You know, he's a scholar and a thinker and a writer and a, and a pastor. Uh, well, not really a pastor, more of a, he was a member of the clergy, but yeah. uh, he, uh, he, he couldn't find any kind of uh, church that would have him or that he would have. <laughs> but it, yeah, much it went both ways, surely. <laughs> it does. Uh, he, was, he seemed to be kind of a pain in the ass, personally. Sounds like it. Uh, but uh, somebody very volatile. Who, who had his own ideas, and, uh, oh. uh, and, we, and he was sticking to them. So right. that's why, uh, but he also knew, and this is part of why he stayed in the shadows, he knew that his ideas were far too controversial, far too revolutionary, far too mm-hmm. threatening to most of what he considered to be the established order, including much of, you know, uh, organized conservatism and libertarianism. Mm-hmm. He, he and North, you know, infused Reconstructionist ideas in what, to what places they could in a rather subversive and quiet way. So what would you say were the bedrock kind of core ideas? Because it seems like to me, reading through Institutes of Biblical Laws and some of his earlier books, I don't know if he was the first sort of Christian Protestant theologian to articulate dominion theology. Would you see anybody before him? I mean, obviously, he borrowed from Calvin and Kuiper and other people, but they weren't dominionist in the strict sense of the word. Was there anybody else before Rush Dooney that you have come across that sort of articulated that dominionist idea? No. No, he, he was he was the first. His uh, his right. original contribution, you know, if we could call it that, was that uh, if you imagine that uh, you should have a Christian world governed according to the revealed principles in the Bible, well, what, what exactly would that look like? Mm-hmm. And he was the first person who systematized that idea by mining everything he could find, you know, particularly in the Old Testament. You know, it's like, well, okay, you have have the Ten Commandments and various judicial applications of the Ten Commandments. And Mm -hmm. he went and dug them all out and systematized it. And that's what became the Institutes of Biblical Law in both volumes. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you were going to do, if you were going to follow a biblical worldview, that's what it would be. Mm -hmm. So even though there are people who disagree with him on various interpretations or, wow, we'd apply this law, but not that law. He set the standard by which everyone else had to measure themselves. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact quote, but you've written, you've talked about the kind of core essence of Christian dominion theology. Isn't it the idea that Christians should be running the show? Christians should be in charge. There's a lot of streams and iterations of dominion theology, isn't there? It's not a one-size-fits-all movement, but would you say, is that the core essence? And did they borrow that idea from Rush Dooney, that Christians should be in charge ultimately? Well, I think that that idea probably wasn't unique to Rush Dooney. What I'm saying is that Rush Dooney had... if you were really serious about that, right, if you're really going to do the whole deal, mm-hmm. you'd have to know exactly what the Bible says and be able to pull out some reasonable uh, applications of that. 
of those ideas mm -hmm. to contemporary society. And that's what his life's work was about and the other Christian Reconstructionist theologians. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea of, of dominion was something applied in this way, I think was a term he coined for that purpose going back into the 1950s, according to McRicker. Well, what would you say was Rush Dooney's worldview in terms of how that was going to actually take place? What would be that vision if it would, like you say, if you were serious about it and you wanted to ascribe to his Christian Reconstructionist ideas, how did that actually flesh out? What was his vision? Uh, his vision w was not as political as many pe people would probably have, as far as I can tell. Hmm. You know, he wanted to, s well, let me back, back up on that a little bit. I mean, a lot of when we talk about uh, the theocratic or dominionist ideas that flow out of Rush Dooney and, and like-minded people, you know, we sort of think of, you know, sneaky political operatives, you know, trying to create a theocratic revolution in the here and mm -hmm. now. That wasn't his view at all. He and the other Reconstructionist thinkers believed that you had to take these ideas, but the God's laws as revealed in the Bible and through Rush Dooney's interpretations, mm -hmm. you know, need to manifest in the hearts of men uh, and who would then express these ideas and, ma and make them real in society. That's an idea that's not unique to Rush Dooney, but uh, as far as his approach, uh, that, that's what he thought. And it's not that he was an entirely apolitical guy, mm -hmm. but uh, he was also, from his view, extremely realistic about what you could do even with this theocratic post-millennial vision. It seems to me in, in what I've read about him and from his writings that he had this very long-term vision. It, it would be generations and generations which explains perhaps why he was so involved in the Christian homeschooling movement back in the, what, I guess, 70s and through the 80s, maybe into the early 90s, whereby the, his vision was, look, it's going to be one household at a time, even uh, in, in his homeschool context, you raise these children according to this biblical worldview, godly parents and all the rest of it. Eventually, yep. there's going to be enough of us where we will take over, and it may be a thousand years or more i don't know but it was a long-term strategy that's right he he was thinking thousands or even tens of thousands of years that's right yeah. he didn't know <laughs> but, but that was, was his estimate his estimate now on the homeschooling front that was very important because first of all he thought that the most important institution was the family he, yes. he differed with his co colleague and son-in-law gary north who thought that the church was the most important institution and, uh, you know, mm. so that they, their emphases were different in that way. But um, that's why he was involved in the homeschooling movement, because he said he and others of like mind think that the first thing you have to do is to get your children out of government schools and, right. and, and find a way to educate them properly in the Christian sense, as they would see it. Yes, the government schools. It's funny because for him, this idea of statism, you know, that it's almost like this, the public school or government school is it's almost like a temple, isn't it? Teaching this worldview, this of secular humanism, uh, in this government school. It's interesting because I don't know if you caught this the other day, but when Ted Cruz gave his CPAC speech uh, just a month or two ago, he used the word statists twice in the speech, and I thought, ah, that has to be a connection to Rush Dooney's theology because. Raphael Cruz, Ted Cruz's father, is a known dominionist, isn't he? And he there is. must be a connection to what Rush Dooney was talking about. Surely Ted Cruz couldn't have used those words just off the top of his head. He had to have been referencing Rush Dooney, as I saw it. I don't know what you thought about it. Uh, he's certainly of that world, and would and would yeah. And when he uses words like that, 
you know, like other very educated people who are grounded, you know, in this world, they, they, they pick their words because they have particular meanings mm-hmm. and certainly meaningful in a reconstruction sense. But given it's a CPAC conference, it's also meaningful in a, even in a secular libertarian sense, mm-hmm. you know, so uh, that, that would be a word that he could speak to multiple audiences with. Exactly, because another key word that he used was collectivists. He said the statists, the collectivists, dot, dot, dot. And what struck me was in Rush Dooney's understanding of statism, which is that the state has essentially become a religion. Education is a religious activity. The state is promoting the religion of secular humanism. Collectivism is almost this idea that we've lost our individual will and freedoms as individual people. Uh, would you see Ted Cruz sort of using it in that way? Would you think? Oh, absolutely. And uh, and of course, the uh, as the as they Rush Dooney and others would understand it, uh, it would be the goal of the secular totalitarian state to snuff out Christianity. Uh, he would they would often frame it in terms of you know uh, or or all other religious beliefs, but they really didn't care about all other religious beliefs. That, that's mm-hmm. a that's a, a philosophical and constitutional convenience, right? But other than that. Uh, yeah, they, they wouldn't really care about uh, what, what Buddhists or Jews think. At what point, though, w- would you say the evangelical or Christian right, I wouldn't say they abandoned Rush Dooney's ideas, but as you say, they found some of them too extreme, didn't they? I mean, the death penalty for homosexuals and incorrigible teens and women who lost their virginity before marriage. But that's what the Old Testament teaches. That's what the law teaches. He was just a literalist, it seemed like. What did they retain from Rush Dooney? And what did they jettison going forward in terms of the Christian right on into the 80s, 90s, and even today? Well, I, I think another Christian Reconstructionist put it well. Uh, Gary DeMar uh, heads this uh, mm-hmm. Reconstructionist think tank called American Vision. And uh, way back when all this stuff was sort of first percolating in the culture, and there was a debate about these things. Uh, and one of the first uh, issues that people got excited about was the execution of homosexuals. And Gary DeMar would say to, uh, to reporters saying, you know, we're not emphasizing that right now. Okay. There's a strategic vision for a lot of these folks, you know, like uh, <laughs> just because you can embrace the whole idea, but you know, there's a certain pace and a certain set of priorities, you know, in, in advancing, advancing the ball down the field. You know? right. And so I'm not at all sure that much of the Christian right has in fact abandoned the ideas ah. of Rush Dooney. It's rather they have a different sense of priority and pacing as to how do you get to the biblical order. Mm, that's an interesting take. Maybe they haven't rejected it, as you say. It's just on the down low then. It's like, well, we're not going to emphasize that right now. We'll mm-hmm. put that on the back burner. When for we example, are in charge, yes, <laughs> we'll, well, for example, different. For example, you know, like uh, uh, Herb Titus, mm-hmm. who was a prominent uh, Christian right attorney, he was the founding dean of uh, the law school at uh, Pat Robertson's Regent University. And he would teach the introduction to constitutional law class at the law school. Mm-hmm. And he taught the uh, Institutes of Biblical Law alongside the standard works of constitutional law. Mm. Because as he put it, if you were going to be a Christian lawyer, you needed to understand these things. Mm. So they understand that they're of two worlds, but they have an agenda going forward. You know, I was I visited the campus a number of times, see what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so one time there was a, a a young woman coming out of uh, coming out of the classroom building there, holding you know the Institutes of Biblical Law. She and I had a big There's old conversation in. about it. You know, 
Uh, <laughs> I couldn't help but notice that book you're carrying. <laughs> couldn't help but notice, exactly. R.J. Rushdoony, ever heard of him? <laughs> and if you go to the library at Regent University, as I have, you know, there's a huge collection of Christian Reconstructionist literature and uh, mm. other materials and not just Rushdoony. And what's that doing there? And we know, like, for example, Michelle Bachman, I think she went to ORU, Oral Roberts University Law School. She was also right. exposed to R.J. Rushdoony. I think that was one of the core textbooks as well at ORU Law School at the time. ORU eventually closed its law school and gave it to Regent University. Right. It was folded uh, into. It was Regents folded school. in. Right. But, but uh, she studied, you know, it was a small law school faculty at ORU. Mm -hmm. And she was studying with Christian Reconstructionists like John Eidsmo and Herb right. Titus. Right. Now, Herb, Titus say, yeah. Herb Titus, on the other hand, says that, uh, and I, I talked to him at a press conference one time about this, because he, 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 he said that he didn't go along with all of uh, contemporary application of uh, Old Testament biblical law. He didn't mm. go into detail about where he differed from Rush Dooney on that, but he could be one of these pacing and priorities guys. Right, we're not emphasizing that at the moment. When we get in charge... Yes, it's so true, isn't it? Well, there must be some connection to Liberty University Law School as well. Is there any traces of Christian Reconstructionism that you've been able to uncover at Liberty University? Uh, well, yeah, Liberty University sort of went through a through a process mm. because uh, uh, Jerry Falwell and the others were were uh, were, were premillennialists who publicly rejected Rush Dooney, although it's also true that Falwell was publishing Rush Dooney in fact in yeah. his moral majority report back in the day. So some of the leading thinkers, theologians who taught at Liberty at the time were people who publicly rejected Christian Reconstructionism. However, mm -hmm. I think that over time, Reconstructionist Dominionist ideas have been thoroughly infused into, into, into Liberty, mm -hmm. uh, just as they have into the world of evangelicalism in general. Yes. Uh, that's been the plan, right, for this body of ideas to defeat that body of ideas. And uh, I think that uh, some Recons Christian Reconstructionists have said that they basically won the war uh, and that, mm. and that uh, the rest is just, as Gary North once put it, a cleanup operation. Oh, right. We're just mopping up now, huh? Yeah, now that's a, a, a bit of a, a exaggerated braggadocio on his part, <laughs> but he's not entirely wrong. Uh -huh. you, know, you, you find very few people who are you know, full-blown, uh, you know, uh, the, the rapture is going to happen and uh, the good Christians will be brought up into the clouds and, and mm -hmm. the forces of God and the forces of Satan will battle it out in the earth and then Jesus will come in the end. You don't hear that stuff much anymore. It's there. Yeah. But that was the dominant narrative throughout certainly American televangelism, you know, mm -hmm. through the 1980s. Uh, but it be went through a gradual shift. Which is strange because Rush Dooney was a post-millennialist, a very staunch post-millennialist. I've read one of his books where he just rails against pre-millennialists, calling them essentially heretics and all the rest of it because yeah. they've kind of they've sold out and all that. And they believe that they had to almost establish Christ's kingdom first and then Christ would return, after which then you have this millennial kingdom, perhaps. So it's a completely different sort of theological end times view. Well, that's right. A field we call eschatology. So mm -hmm. what's your what's your vision of the end times? So there was a, a large process that went on, a series of evangelical dialogues, uh, negotiations, if you will, uh, that centered on the idea of politics. You're probably familiar with the Coalition on Revival. And yes. that was the body 
you know, started in the, in the uh, met many, many times in the 1980s, because if you were politically concerned, premillennialist, your theology said that, well, you shouldn't get mucked up in, in the things of this world, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're risking your eternal soul, uh, Satan's ever present in the world as it is, and you can't expect big change until Jesus comes, so don't do it. Hence, mm. evangelicals, at least, you know, since the Scopes trials in the, in the United States, yeah. were on the political sidelines. But if you're Tim LaHaye or Pat Robertson, it's like, well, how, how, do, you, how do you navigate that, right? So the Reconstructionists, uh, post-millennialists, and the pre-mills of uh, Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye kind of variety had a series of negotiations in which they had a series of statements they could agree or disagree with. And the key one was, well, exactly when is the second coming going to happen? And to what extent should that govern our politics? You know, and so it came down to like, well, everybody agreed that you, good Christians ought to do something. Question right. is, can't just how, ignore it. Can't just ignore it. There's evil yeah. in the world. And, you know, uh, we're Americans and citizens and there's stuff that we can and should do. But what and how much? Right. Mm. And so what they finally, uh, the breakthrough thing was they, decided that there were things that needed to be done and that they could agree to disagree with how much could be accomplished until Jesus returned. Right. Once you set aside the debate, right, the debate was a thought stopper, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, I'm not going to risk my eternal soul over politics, but you must, you know, engage in Mm. politics if you're a good Christian. Again, just like anybody else in public life, you can agree to disagree about how much you can reasonably accomplish, but that opened the door to everything. Without that, critical shift, right? The Christian right wouldn't have been possible. Yes, I've read the coalitions on revival. They've got their worldview papers, don't they? There's a whole bunch of them. Jay Grimstead and his organization, I don't know what they're doing nowadays, if anything, but what I found fascinating was when I got to the page where it has all the signatories, all these high-profile people who signed the initial statement Yes. Uh, I, I saw the name of the, when I went to Bible college in the States, the president of my Bible college signed that document. And he, as far as I know, was no dominionist. He was not a Christian reconstruction that, I, that I'm aware of. He was just sort of a dyed in the wool evangelical. He's dead now. But what hit me was if he was willing to sign that document, that's exactly what you're saying, isn't it? It was sort of a it opened up the level, the playing field a little bit, didn't it? Among people on the left, the right, and some of the other places to kind of go ahead politically. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, mm. and so it, it's sort of been my experience, you know, over time, and it's sort of a basic uh, organizer's idea is that you have to get people to take the first baby step. Yeah. And after that, the rest of the steps come easier. So if people have been deeply recalcitrant about getting involved in politics, and they say, well, some involvement is okay, and then they get their feet wet, and they, they begin to see what can and perhaps should be done, that opens up lots of possibilities. And that's, mm-hmm. been, that's been the experience of many, many, many evangelicals, you know, in the mm-hmm. course of uh, the past few decades. I hope you are enjoying this bonus episode with Fred Clarkson of the Political Research Associates. I'm so glad that I finally got a hold of Fred. We have been emailing, as I said at the beginning, probably for two years, going back and forth, trying to set up a podcast episode, and we finally got it done. 
And now we've confirmed that Fred is going to be dropping in on our April MindShift Zoom call. He's going to be coming in on the 25th of April as our guest. And we're going to be going over a lot of this stuff. And of course, Fred broke the story on Project Blitz. And that's what we're going to get into in the second half of this episode, as well as Christian nationalism and some of the other elements in terms of this discussion of the theological foundations of the Christian right. What's their strategy and what are we seeing even now today, post-Trump era? It's really, really important to keep a handle on what's going on. They're now regrouping. They're going to come back, hopefully, in their view, stronger than ever once Biden finishes his four years or eight years or however long he ends up staying in office. So they're playing the long game for sure. So it's really helpful to understand what's going on in terms of the Christian right, not just in America, but indeed around the world. So how can you get on this call with Fred on the 25th of April? Well, you can be a supporter of this show on Patreon. That gets you access to our closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group. And it is there that we have our monthly Zoom calls. We've been doing two a month. We've got at least one booked for April, like I say, with Fred. We might be adding another one. But we're also doing patrons-only calls, usually around the first or second weekend of the month. We've had two of those now, and those have been absolutely fantastic. Basically, we're building a community, a supportive community of people like myself, most of us who have left religion behind and are seeking to rebuild our lives, find our lost identities, as it were. And this is a great way to connect up with other people who are like-minded, who come out of religion like so many of us do. So you can find the links to that in the show notes. And in fact, speaking of patrons of the show, I want to give a huge thank you to Flo and Jim. Conway and Siegelman are the latest supporters of this show on Patreon. So I'm going to be sending them a nice little gift from North Wales. In fact, I got a message on Twitter the other day. Someone tweeted out, they received my gift for being a supporter of the show. And so that was cool to see that they really enjoyed it. So it's just a small token of my appreciation for helping me cover my expenses on the show. I will say too, what's coming up in the next couple of episodes? Well, of course, this one here is a bonus episode, but the next regularly scheduled episode is with Dr. Terry Daniel. She has a podcast called Ask Dr. Death. And this is a fascinating discussion. We get into the subject of death, dying, grief, trauma, religious trauma, mental health, and religion. And then I've got one coming out later with Andrew Jasko. We're talking about the use of psychedelics to treat religious trauma syndrome and PTSD. And in fact, speaking of Andrew, he was just our guest on our second MindShift Zoom call in the month of March. And I'm going to be posting that up on my public Mindship Podcast Facebook page, as well as the earlier one we had the week before with Thomas Hanna. We kind of focused on RTS in the month of March. So those two calls, if you want to drop in, have a look. They're going to be available on the public Mindship Podcast Facebook page. You can like that page, and that way you'll receive notifications anytime I post up content. And speaking of great content, I'll just mention really quickly before we get back into the chat with Fred Clarkson that I have been continuing my discussions every month with Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch. I post those exclusively straight up to my YouTube channel. This last month, a few weeks ago, we had a really good discussion about the Texas connection. Why are there so many organizations and key individuals on the Christian right that come from the state of Texas or they're headquartered there. And Peter and I explore that. In fact, someone messaged me and said, would you do some stuff on Vision Forum 
where Doug Phillips had that organization, which was also, I believe, based out of Texas. So I think next month we're going to be looking at Vision Forum and what all the whole story was around that. And so look for that coming out next month with Peter Montgomery. If you subscribe to my YouTube channel, again, you won't miss any new content that gets posted there. All right, let's get back into the chat with Fred Clarkson. We're going to get into Christian nationalism, Project Blitz, talk about some of the stuff that's coming up in the Christian right as guys like Fred are so invaluable because he's been writing about this stuff, researching it literally for decades. And he's one of these people that is really on the vanguard of keeping an eye on the Christian right. So let's get back into the chat with Fred and see what we can learn about the theological foundations of the Christian right. Right. Well, and going back to your analogy about moving the ball down the field, if you're using the American football, as we call it here in Britain, that analogy, you don't have to score a touchdown on every play. You're not going to. If you can get a few yards and move the ball, you're you're, you're doing something positive. For example, this, I don't know what's happened to it, but there, there was a recent flap with this Madison Cawthorn, and he was accused of sexual abuse and other things, but he was a student at Patrick Henry College, which I thought, aha, this is an interesting connection because I was writing a book last year. I'm nearly finished with it on Rush Dooney's influence on Christian homeschooling, which then led me to Patrick Henry College because I, as I'm seeing it, Patrick Henry is trying to advance that ball down the field. They're about 75 to 80% of their student body is homeschooled kids, students, right. who then are trying to get into political as interns. They're getting into the legal field. So they are infiltrating politics and law and other high profile professions as specifically, I read their handbook. It's got a dominionist overtones all over it, as I saw it, kind of a seven mountains mandate sort of thing. Well, yeah, Michael Ferris, the founder, you know, was the head of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which mm -hmm. is the biggest, you know, uh, network of homeschoolers. And now he's know. head of the ADF, which is even bigger. <laughs> well, that's right. And so, you know, yeah. he's... Uh, he has a long resume in Christian rights stuff, but yeah, it was originally intended to be the college for uh, Christian homeschoolers. You know, they, mm -hmm. uh, they, they began to do some affirmative action for, for non-homeschoolers, but uh, right. in order to survive. But yeah, uh, during the Bush administration, uh, Bush too, they were a feeder school into internships in, in Washington. And, uh, you know, the Bush administration entirely cooperated with that. Sure. Yeah, they love PHC interns, graduates, they're hard workers, very conservative. Um, and of course, we know uh, in the Trump administration as well, I know a lot of them served as interns, interns for congressmen, congresswomen, senators, Supreme Court judges, federal judges. So they've been infiltrating quietly. We don't know who, where all the interns are. I guess there may be a way to find out, but that's a concern. I think that these people are just sneaking in the back door in a way through Patrick Henry. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and other schools. <laughs> yeah. Liberty uh, as well. Yeah. And Liberty, other places. When I was first started uh, doing this stuff and thinking about these things, I mean, there was no Liberty University. Hmm. Right? There was Jerry Falwell who had a, uh, you know, a weekly Sunday, you know, uh, yeah, old time gospel hour, old time gospel hour, broadcast, That's the one. His, broadcast his Sunday sermon, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, he was a pugnacious figure, so he became, you know, prominent. But, um, you know, there was, uh, there was no Liberty University. That came later. And it's now the largest Christian university in the world. That's huge. In, so in just a few decades, it became the largest Christian, you know, university yeah. in the world. 
which is really, uh, to me, it's, it's one of the, uh, a lens through which to view the, the growth and the power of you know, evangelical Protestantism in the United States. That fact alone tells mm. you what you need to know. And that, uh, that we're not talking about a bunch of uh, you know, ill-educated rubes you know, with crazy mm-hmm. beliefs. We're talking about well-educated professional class of people bent on influencing culture and taking political power. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna change the world, Christianizing America. I know we haven't talked about this, but to what extent is Christian nationalism playing in all of this? Because surely a huge motivating factor in the drive behind a lot of these people doing this stuff, Christianizing America, is their belief in Christian nationalism. They want to take America back for God and all that kind of language. Second Chronicles seven fourteen and all the rest of it. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Christian nationalism thing, I mean, it wasn't even on the public radar screen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, until, uh, you know, Whitehead and Perry, you know, published their op-ed in the yep. Washington Post in the, in the lead up to their publishing their book based on, you know, s- survey data. Yeah. And what had happened there was that the, uh, as you'll know, is that uh, they realized that belief in America as a Christian nation was the greatest predictor of mm-hmm. likelihood of voting for Donald Trump. Now, this was a breakthrough thing because nobody ever thought about it that way before. Mm-hmm. Uh, pollsters, religious and, and non-religious, just didn't think in those terms. You know, it, <laughs> they just didn't. So, right. And so that's been helpful for those of us who write and talk about these things because suddenly it's okay to think about it and there's a frame of reference. <sighs> Problem with it is that it's now become an epithet. It's like an all-purpose catchphrase that mm-hmm. ta- it's tagged everything. Uh, I've even, people have argued with me, well, you can't use the term Christian right anymore. You have to use Christian nationalism. I said, no, you don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is Christian nationalism exactly? Right. And uh, so people have a wide variety of interpretations of what it even is. And so it's one of those terms you really have to break down to even find it uh, useful. Mm-hmm. So um, how do you define it? Then what is Christian nationalism? I define it, uh, you know, much of the way that uh, the, the poll would have found it, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the idea, if you believe, say, that God and found it, the founding fathers intended uh, the United States to be a Christian nation, you know, that's a, a certain anchor, a, a mythological anchor in your politics, right, and your views. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like uh, what we were talking about earlier with, like, if you have a biblical worldview and therefore what your government look like, well, you don't have any idea unless you've read Rushdie. You know, or somebody who's written mm-hmm. about Russia, because that become the standard. So it's one thing to say, well, you know, I believe in a biblical worldview. Well, what's that? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. You got to unpack that. You got to unpack it. And so mm-hmm. these become great, big, you know, fuzzy terms that lose all nuance and all clarity and good scholarship and good reporting. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that Christian nationalist myth has been there all along. Mm-hmm. But what I what I argue with my friends about this, and that's uh, say, you know, Christian nationalism, yeah, it's always been there. <laughs> mm-hmm. There were these people may or may not have used the term back in the uh, back at the founding, but they meant something kind of like that. And it's certainly the idea of Christian na- nationalism, uh, and the idea of a Christian nation goes back to at least Dabney. Uh, Catherine Stewart's written about that in her book. But you know, what I tell people is, you know. This idea has been out there. It's kind of a warm and fuzzy thing if you're a conservative Christian, but there was no there there. Mm-hmm. It didn't mean anything. It didn't animate anything. It was sort of a uh, sort of a, a justificational anchor for some of what they did, but it justified everything, right? But didn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean anything until 
Rush Uni came along and created dominionism, which gave an actual political governmental architecture to what a Christian nation might be. There mm. is no Christian nationalism without dominionism. And that's a piece most people miss. That is a huge connection, isn't it? Yeah. And you can, I think too, the problem is, you know, you go back to the Puritans, Winthrop and some other people. I mean, I think that a lot of them did truly believe that the colonies did have some sort of covenant with God. They did sure. see themselves as the new Israel coming to the promised land. They saw themselves as sort of the embodiment of Old Testament Israel in many, many ways. So sure. there is some, there's enough to it. So a guy like David Barton comes along. Right. Says, well, look at all these, yeah. That's look right. at all these quotes. <laughs> well, all those quotes that have nothing to do with the formation of the United States. Exactly. But they <laughs> truly believed it. Somehow he he's projected that onto all of America saying all of the founding fathers were all staunch, basically evangelicals. They believe they had a covenant with God, and therefore we do. We just do. And, and mm-hmm. we've, we've gone astray from it. We need to get back to it. And, and there you, there's your Christian nationalist sort of narrative, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. And it, it's, a, it's a kind of revisionist history to justify you know, your contemporary mm-hmm. religious and political views in terms of your claims about uh, the, the intentions of God and the founding fathers. Uh, the historian Frank Lambert has written about this, and he calls it what, a, a usable history, right? Mm. Usable history. Very convenient uh, facts. <laughs> alternative <convenient>. facts. <laughs> alternative facts. <laughs> That's right. Go. Barton we'll was doing Kelly alternative facts before we even knew what they were. Hey, but, there you yeah. go. <laughs> But uh, yeah, that, and that's critically important to understand. You know, I mean, one of the ways that I try to unpack or expose this stuff is say, look, these guys are treating the pilgrims of the Puritans and the founding fathers 150 years later as if they all believed exactly the same thing. Mm. Right. It wasn't is, a monolithic belief that applied to everybody. Well, they try to act like Barton, people like that will act like they did. Yes. Right. And the, the cherry pick quotes make it sound like, oh, yeah, well, everybody is religious in exactly the same way. Well, they weren't. They all were in tremendous theological and political disagreement mm. with another because that's what human beings are like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, too, I read Kurt Ander- Anderson's Fantasyland, and he does a good job of talking about the founders. And it was basically, Amer- he says America was founded on a fantasy of gold and treasure that you could just pick up off the beaches and all that. But in addition to that, it was this widespread belief that, yes, you could practice your own religious beliefs without fear of persecution from the state like they experienced here in Europe. So there was a, a plethora of nutcase religions that came along, you know, mm-hmm. Mormonism and all these other religions, uh, Christian science and on and on and on and on. What about those? You know, there was some of the very earliest people that came over here for, or to America for religious freedom and established a religion. It wasn't a Christian religion necessarily. Well, yeah, it's, it's a, in the United States and its predecessor colonies were always religiously diverse. You know, mm-hmm. people of the Jefferson's you know era, they personally knew Muslims, you know, and Hindus, <laughs> and you know, right. and Buddhists. I mean, Washington and the Potomac, you know, were a center of trade, and there were people coming in from all over the world, you know, and so yeah. They were educated people who knew about these things, and there were tremendous religious diversity, even in the colonies in that era. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, to, to think of something as monolithically even conservative evangelical Christian is silly on its face. Right. Well, now, we've talked about this kind of stealth approach, maybe like the Patrick Henry College and interns in the Trump administration, or even as far back as the Bush administration. What about some of the more overt things? Because I know you've written and talked about Project Blitz 
For example, that's one thing. That's a, a straight up power play, isn't it? Or a few years ago, I don't know what's happened to some of these states, but about what was it, two or three years ago, we saw all of a sudden in, I don't know, eight or nine states, these super restrictive abortion laws that they tried to get passed. And a lot of them failed, but they, they're on the books now, aren't they? So this seems like some straight up power plays by people on the Christian right. What can you tell us about things like Project Blitz? Project Blitz is really interesting. Uh, I, mean, I broke the original story on it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, uh, uh, the, the key piece in it is this 140-page uh, manual of model legislation uh, in mm -hmm. a number of different categories. What was most interesting to me, other than its uh, clear dominionist intent, uh, was that uh, what they'd wanted to do was to take uh, the learned experience from having their successes and their failures from around the country and saying and uh, introducing uh, legislation that would uh, uh, allow you to post uh, in God we trust in public buildings. Mm -hmm. That's been a big one for Project Blitz, but it's been a big one for the Christian right for a long time. And so how you go about it may depend on the outcome. So they had all of this background and talking points about how to, how to approach it how to mm -hmm. uh, answer critics, what the most common objections would be and how you counter them. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it. Mm. <laughs> and uh, the organization sponsoring it, you know, actually posted the manual on their own website. Yes, <laughs> I've never I've seen, I've never the, seen the anybody blunder like that before. Yeah, they made a it, huge mistake. It was the Congressional Prayer Caucus, wasn't that who it was? Or uh, one of the organizations? Yeah, it's a spinoff of the Congressional Prayer Caucus called the Congressional Prayer Caucus Foundation, right. uh, which is a C3 spinoff of uh, the Congressional Prayer Caucus founded by the same guy, former Congressman Randy Forbes hmm. of Virginia. So, yeah, and uh, their legislative program is called Project Blitz, uh, an unfortunate uh, choice of names. Hmm. But, uh, but uh, Especially if you're from London, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not a good memory for them. Well, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, or, you know, in France and Belgium. But, yes. the, uh, <laughs> uh, but in any case, uh, so yeah, this is a, enormous manual model bills, many of which were taken up by a national network of state legislators they created, many of them David Barton's network, because he was one of the people behind this. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, they took the model bills and adapted them to their state's circumstances and introduced them in, in a stealth fashion. Uh, and a lot of them passed, uh, a lot of them failed, uh, but nevertheless, they were, the intention there uh, was to drive the debate. Some were relatively easy, you know, uh, low-hanging fruit, not as controversial as some others. It's one thing to, you know, uh, declare uh, Religious Freedom Day, let's say, you know, it's like, well, you can have a resolution to declare right. whatever. Politicians do that all the time. Right. Pretty innocuous. Pretty innocuous. And so right. they wanted to- Not going to offend anybody. That, that's right. And so, but they would move, the idea was to move towards the more seriously theocratic, uh, more controversial legislation as they built up political momentum over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. I read through the book and I was the same, what you're describing, isn't it? It's like, they said, look, just start off, take that low hanging fruit, things like putting in God we trust on license plates or the side of a police car or a fire engine or something like that, or a public building. And we know a lot of them are going to get shot down. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? It's sort of like whack-a-mole. We'll, we'll just keep introducing, we'll flood this place with so much legislation that eventually they'll blitz it, literally. Some of this has got to get through. It's like the Normandy landings, isn't it? If we just overwhelm the defenses, eventually enough of us are going to get through to take the beachhead, you know? Mm -hmm. So it struck me. And then they got into stuff like, you know, like you're saying, Bible reading in schools and Bible literacy programs and things like that. And it's like, okay, this has gone from a state license plate to now 
forcing people to read the Bible as literature, in air quotes, in a public school. Well, yeah. I mean, I read the Bible as literature, you know, in college, but, you know, there, there's a there's an age and education level appropriateness to that kind sure. of stuff. Uh, but that's the, that's the thing. There's a point at which, you know, what is educational, it's indoctrination. And they're mm. uh, clearly using the idea of education in a sense as a form of indoctrination. So there's a lot of clever stuff like that. But uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't add that, I mean, this is a legislative program or a legislative program, but it wouldn't be possible if they didn't also have a political program, you know, mm. to make it to make it real, right? And so the idea of uh, of the Christian right is to elect people to office, right? State legislators and governors and those sorts of state level offices are critical to moving this agenda. Mm-hmm. State legislation, you have to have the votes. Sure, so, you have uh, the numbers. So when Project Look started, right, was 2015, beginning to look at the 2016 legislative session. Since uh, now, going back to uh, the end of the Bush administration, the uh, Republican Party and the Christian right had a plan, and that was to uh, elect as many, uh, as many people to the state legislature as they could and to flip control of legislative chambers, mm-hmm. of which there are 99 in the United States, from, uh, you know, from Democratic to Republican, because the Democrats sort of had a hegemonic control of state legislatures mm-hmm. at the time. The first goal was to... Uh, uh, was to affect every 10 years, there's a census, right? Of mm-hmm. Everybody in the United States. And you reapportion legislative districts, Congress and state legislatures, according to where the people are. So it's roughly proportionate mm-hmm. uh, and therefore roughly one person, one vote kind of uh, representation. So um, the idea was to be able to gerrymander the, the legislative districts that are controlled by the states so that uh, they could maximize their political control. And... The result of all of that, beginning in 2010, was in the election of 2010, they won hundreds and hundreds of seats and flipped many state uh, legislative Mm -hmm. chambers. And they continued that pattern until the Democrats finally put the brakes on it in in 2018. Hmm. And so this is so Project Blitz is cooked up in the middle of this period. When the Republicans of the Christian right are taking, they help during the Obama administration. During the Obama administration, the Democrats lost a thousand state legislative seats mm. across the country, wow. which was un- just unprecedented in American political yeah, huge history. Huge turnaround. Huge turnaround. Yeah. And so the Christian right understood that this was a moment of opportunity, right? Hence the idea of the blitz. They had to move quickly and forcefully to ram their agenda while they still had the power to do so. Yeah. Strike while the iron's hot. Yep. But now we've just finished four years of the Trump administration. We haven't really talked about Trump, and I know we're running out of time here, but we've had four years of Trump, the huge evangelical vote base for him, 81% white evangelical votes. They saw him as their Messiah. They saw him, as I understand it, as the means of attaining dominion. Now they didn't get it. Now they're all devastated and angry that he got voted out of office. Of course, he didn't lose, you know, Fred. He lost by because of voter fraud. <laughs> I, I've heard that. Rest. I've heard that. <laughs> yes, you may have heard that somewhere, but maybe a Rudy Giuliani or a Trump, I don't know, or whatever. But they've now gotten really angry. However, toward the end, they got a couple of Supreme Court justices. Amy Coney Barrett was shoved through with yeah. seconds to spare. And it seems like the, the cynical ploy there was, look, we'll stack the Supreme Court as well as many other federal benches 
Trump appointed hundreds of judges, didn't he, then will eventually overturn Roe versus Wade. Isn't that kind of one of the major aims of the Christian right? They see abortion as the biggest corporate sin of America. Well, they do. And uh, they won and they will. Mm -hmm. So you think Roe versus Wade will be overturned then? It'll be overturned or significantly gutted and rendered meaningless. Right. Uh, even the Supreme Court, you know, uh, is uh, politically wily. You know, they, they yeah. don't want to get too far ahead of the public, which is overwhelmingly pro-choice. So they could they can gut it without overturning it and having the least you know political backlash. Uh, that that's a possibility. But mm-hmm. the idea that Roe and and what it meant as we've historically understood it, you know, is uh, is over. Hmm. Will will be within the next couple it of years. It will be, yeah. So the ball uh, is advancing down the field. Well, that's right. And there'll be increasing opportunities because the court is stacked this way too for uh, religious exemptions to standard civil rights laws, particularly those protecting LGBTQ people, and yes. uh, but also labor laws around pensions and all kinds of things uh, mm-hmm. because there are quite a few religious exemptions written right into uh, the laws as they were written. And the Christian right is attorneys like <laughs> the Alliance Defending Freedom you know, have gone mm-hmm. and found where all those places are and are, are, are running with it, and they have a sympathetic federal judiciary to make it so. So even though Trump has left office, that legacy, I mean, we've said that before, and many people have said, haven't they, the biggest legacy that Trump will have left behind is all these judges on the bench, and the most obvious example is the Supreme Court justices that he shoved through, even though now there's this breaking story about the, the Kavanaugh investigation. They're saying, oh, the FBI just, it was a fake investigation, there's probably a lot of pressure from William Barr's DOJ at the time and said, we're going to shut this thing down because we need to get him through. So is anything going to come of that? They're saying, well, we should impeach Kavanaugh. You know, I don't know if anything's going to happen there, but that was a sham investigation, it seems like. Yeah, it was. It was kind of known at the time, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. nobody, but the, uh, the, uh, nobody had the power to do anything about it. Um, That's it. And now there are people who are interested who do have the power to do something about it. Now, it was a sham investigation. And one of the things that should be should have been looked at, and now I think will be looked at, is Kavanaugh was massively in debt at the time yes. of the nom- nomination. And some That's mysterious be- benefactor yeah. mysteriously paid off all of his debt. Huh. Disappeared. Uh, just, yes. you know, wh- where'd that money come from? Who was that? And what does Kavanaugh then owe somebody? Exactly. It's such an interesting story. I hope they investigate that angle as well as the sham investigation, whether or not it goes anywhere. I suppose it's like Trump's, all the Trump lawsuits that he's facing now that he's no no longer president. Will anything come of it? He's got lawsuits galore and investigations galore. You know, will anybody finally bring him down? He's never had to account for anything his entire life. He's gotten away with everything. Well, yeah, I, I think uh, I think the bills come due for him and his and his family and all of their associates. Yes. You know, the idea that Donald Trump will be a major power in the Republican Party or that his children will ever be elected to office is, you know, farcical. Uh, just it, is, yeah. it isn't going to happen. Uh, they're going to be too busy, you know, being uh, prosecuted, having court dates, dealing with lawyers, being in and out of prison, and uh, and engaging in the most spectacular tabloid uh, mutual betrayal uh, mm. uh, soap opera that the country's ever seen. Yeah. There's a lot of intrigue going on. They want to, they're trying to flip certain people like Weisselberg and his daughter and other people that were, I mean, they, they know where all the skeletons are in all the closets in the Trump organization. Don't they? I mean, Michael Cohen's obviously singing like a canary, you know, yeah. so they've got a lot of stuff and having his tax returns, 
That's you know, right. so it just goes deeper and deeper, doesn't it? It's just a matter of time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend is being, you know, uh, in mm-hmm. negotiations on her situation as well. So a, a lot of the a lot of the most corrupt and criminal things that have gone on in recent decades, you know, uh, there's going to be some accountability soon. Well, listen, I know that our time is drawing to a close. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. How can people find you? What's the best way to reach you uh, in terms of social media? Uh, Well, I'm pretty visible on Twitter at Fred Clarkson. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. (laughs) And obviously do a search on your name. You'll find articles. You've got some books out there. I was going to say now, I know we, we, as long as we've talked for an hour, though, we barely touched the tip of the iceberg. I would love to talk to you again. If you're wanting to do that, I would love to have you back on and we could take another deep dive into some more of the Christian right, some of the areas that maybe we didn't get a chance to cover. So if you're up for that, I'd love yes. to chat again. Sure, we can do that. Okay. Thank you very much, Fred. I will speak to you again then. All right. Very good. 